Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. How are you guys doing? Good. Thank you. Rob's on lockdown. Really? Yeah, we're not doing too bad. But again, you know, there's still, I do have anti-vaxxer friends just because I don't love your enemies, right? Apparently, even if you've got doubly vaccinated, you can still be, you can still pass it on. Is that true? Crazy. So I feel like we're, we're, we're planning our first trip this weekend. We're going over to Vancouver Island on the, you know, it's a two hour boat ride. And it's like, uh oh, I don't know. And my, 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 we're going to see my brother. He was over for a few days. So we'll see how we do. Otherwise, I'm just going to go into the bunker like you, Paul, and hide out in the yeah. dark. That's all I do. I just <laughs> yeah. occasionally, oh, actually, today I went to the YMCA and swam. So I had to fly in quite a while. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, we always sing that when we go. <laughs> I, I hear i hear that it's fun to stay there especially if you're an indian chieftain or a, <laughs> or a police officer yeah. <laughs> rob where is it you're you're broadcasting from sydney sydney australia oh okay cool <laughs> most dangerous place in the world sharks scorpions dingoes i never want to go there <laughs> well you know australia is a big country so it is possible to come here and avoid all those things. Just don't go where they are. Yeah, I have a nephew who lives there, and a cousin, and an aunt, actually. So, oh, and they're they're all surviving. Where are they? Um, Melbourne, I believe. And South my aunt is in Double. Have you heard of Double? Oh, yeah. Inland, yeah. I've I've only heard good things about Australia. That Australians, it, it's a very easygoing sort of place. Yeah, m- most of the time. Except when you have an. Uh, COVID or fires or drought. Everything I, everything I know about Australia, I learned through uh, Crocodile Dundee 2. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's where all us Americans get our culture. <laughs> I mean, that's okay. To be, to be fair, a lot of uh, Australians' understanding of America probably comes through um, the Rambo, the Rambo, yeah. you know, Hollywood coming to America, Japan. They uh, they take those movies quite literally. They just assume we're all carrying. Well, I say that as I say it, I realize, oh well, actually that is true in Missouri. <laughs> we're all carrying coronavirus. Thomas, uh, you can ask anybody here about last week because they are now highly informed and can bring you up to speed. <laughs> uh, I think David is saying, pick me, pick me. Yeah, David, David. <laughs> something about perverts and... Yeah. <laughs> That's this week, I think, Matt. Last week was living with the lie of radical freedom and radical evil. Actually, strangely enough, I don't know that we actually talked about radical evil. So if you had to define what radical evil is, as opposed to Augustinian evil. August, Augustine, you know, in good classical fashion, said that evil is a failure you know, to sort of live up to the good, whereas radical evil, evil is not just a failure to sort of be, but it's actually like a, maybe even like an ontological sort of reality. Whereas like Augustine was saying, it's not that... It's not that evil has like an ontological reality. It's just a failure, failure to, to sort of live up to the to the good. But there's other folks who say, no, it's not that Hitler just failed to live up to the good. He was like ontological. You know, evil is like a force that's actual. The title of the chapter right, uh, was Radical Freedom and Radical Evil. And the idea is that was Schelling, Hegel, Zizek, Lacan. You actually need radical evil in order to have freedom, because the idea is that nothing is the ontological foundation, and it's only where nothing is the ontological foundation, where nothing constrains, that you get total freedom. And so German idealism, you know, if you had to say what Zizek's program is, Adrian Johnson is a guy who's kind of interesting. He's just plugging away down there in New Mexico. I don't know anybody that's written more extensively on Zizek than Johnson. I don't know if anybody reads his stuff or not. 
but he keeps publishing books. And this is his point, that, that the whole program of German idealism in which Zizek is working is aimed at freedom, just freedom for freedom's sake is the idea. I think that nicely sums it up. But actually, Thomas, that's not at all what we talked about last week. I, I don't remember. The two that we're looking here is perversion and hysteria, or uh, yeah, hysteria. Could you give just a quick overview? I think I... Uh, actually, uh, Matt sent me a, a Bob Dylan song that is a kind of nice example of the pervert. I'm not saying Bob Dylan's a pervert, but he's singing in the voice of a pervert. And that is that we do not ask questions because we know that God is on our side. There is no questioning of the law. The law is absolute. There, There is this all-encapsulating possibility for explanation. And the question is not if there is that possibility, but the drive then is to encompass everything. You know, this is Newtonian. I always, I don't know if Newtonian physics resonates with people, but that's, you know, Newton is summing everything up in the law, that the law, you know, the laws of physics, even God is subject to the laws of time and space and inserts creation, the created order, into those laws. So those those laws, you know, it's a kind of sensorium of God is the way that Newton talks about it. Throughout history, though, there has been this, I would say that most of history of thought and philosophy is a history of perversion or perverts. This, This isn't what we mean well, it is partly what we mean. You know, it is uh, Pee Wee Herman standing up in the movie theater and exposing himself. But before it's that, it is just this idea of identifying, imagining a kind of ontotheology, a kind of fullness of explanation as possible, that the law covers everything up to and including God so that we know who God is through the law, that we relate to God through the law. So that would be the masculine understanding. Would it be safe to say, like you could put, uh, like you could put uh, an Augustine in that category or an Anselm? They saw the law: you can do evil to get to good. That's always there, you know. In uh, Augustine, literally, you get in Augustine the kind of the inside and outside dualism, and so li- quite literally, there is the possibility of doing evil doing violence to obtain the good, that those two things become a literal possibility. Now, well, you know, I hesitate to say, oh, that pervert. Augustine is a more complicated thinker than, than that, but I think that that characterizes the, the tendency in Augustine. And I think you're right that Anselm is a true pervert with his ontological argument. And again, I'm not talking about the man, I'm talking about the thought. Anselm was a very likable figure. I think the, guy, the monks at Beck really loved him, and I think he had profound friendships. So when, when we're saying this about these historical figures, we're not reducing all that they are to this, but their thought is characterized by this, what we would call a masculine idea of saying it all. That is, we can say everything. It's always a drive to say everything because something always escapes you. So that would be the masculine. And if we had to do the history of thought, I know uh, Julian James may not dazzle you, but I think he gives us a brain explanation that is a nice illustration, whether you buy it or not, that, you know, the bicameral mind and the idea that the linguistic side of the brain is taken to be a sort of objective voice. Whether he's correct or not that the hardware of the brain evolved in that fashion, I think there's no question that we can look at the history of thought and see that this is indeed the way that human subjectivity for most people, most places functioned. That is that people were caught up in a web of law. You know, if you think of the Comanches or the Apaches, the Apaches are fighting the white man and and there's a particularly, you know, deep and thoughtful warrior. And he says to Cochise, you know, hey, Cole, I'm not really feeling the whole, uh, you know, warrior stuff and that whole macho scene. I'm just going to hang out at my teepee and play my flute. And maybe me and the squaws will dance around the fire a little bit while you boys. I don't think that form of subjectivity was possible for most people in most times. 
that is to step outside. That is that their whole their whole notion of what it means to be a human, the Native Americans would refer to themselves as the humans, was then in, in this web of understanding that we're describing then as a complete masculine identification with the law, the, the, or the, what Lacan is calling the masculine orientation. Okay, that, that's step one is the masculine. And then the other is the feminine. Freud begins his practice with uh, hysteric patients, basically upper middle class women who had, you know, they, what they were calling hysteria. A hysteria is not what it comes to mean in Lacan and Zizek is not derogative. You know, Lacan refers to Hegel as the most sublime of hysterics. So hysteria is a good thing in Lacanian theory in that there is a questioning of the law. There is a saying, well, this order does not, it's not all, it's not everything. The idea is that Paul in Romans 7 is displaying uh, hysteria. He's showing us both sides of this, but but the very questioning that he's doing, Zizek would say, is the Christian Paul. What I would say was, no, that, that's not the Christian Paul yet, but I do think it is the insight of the Christian Paul into who Paul was before he was a Christian, or into what human subjectivity looks like, and that is there is this awareness of a kind of questioning of the law, but, of course, that's, for Zizek, that's the end point, or the Lacanian theory, or even in, you know, psychoanalytic theory, literal psychoanalysis, that's the goal. Lacan's psychoanalytic sessions, he was famous for the 15-minute session. Freud had always said, well, you know, a session is an hour. I don't know why he chose an hour. And Lacan says, well, we don't need to put any time on the session, because the very point of the session is to create a kind of shock in the, the person being analyzed, in which the point of the shock is, you know, when you go, you go to therapy, you go to a psychoanalyst, you think they, they're going to tell you the, the explanation to your problem. That's why you go to a therapist. And of course, what in Lacanian theory, your sickness is you think somebody can explain to you what your sickness is. That is the sickness. That is the perversion. And so the whole point of therapy is to dispossess you of that perversion. You imagine that the father knows or the therapist is kind of in the place of God or that, you know, here I'm going to get an explanation. And the point is, is to break that understanding. When the patient turns against the therapist, in a sense, and realizes, oh, he doesn't know anything. That's the point of therapy. Nobody knows, which if you think about it a little bit, this sounds strange, but if you think about it a little bit, it's actually a kind of interesting, you know, what is the human sickness? Well, part of the sickness is we always imagine there is a specific cause, a, a reasonable cause to my neurosis. And if I go to the doctor, he will explain to me where this neurosis arises from. This goes back to an Augustinian picture of evil. Evil is not something you can explain. Different people argue about what Augustine is doing. I'm doing Milbank's Augustine here. His point is that nothing or evil is not subject to explanation. If it were subject to explanation, it wouldn't be evil. And so in a sense, I kind of agree, you know, that our neurosis is we think our neurosis has a, a rational cause. No, that's why it's a neurosis. Get over it. Nobody can explain it to you. Now, that may be kind of frustrating, but that's the point. That's the death drive. Oh, I want an explanation. So that's the feminine, that there's a kind of not all. There is a, uh, a lack in the law, that the law is not everything. Well, just think about it a minute. The whole point of Pauline theology is to say the law is not everything. The law is a tutor to bring us to Christ. There is what precedes the law in the faith of Abraham, and there's what comes after the law in Christ. And so the law was never to be the all in all. And Paul, I think, is, is saying what Lacan is saying, or Lacan is saying what Paul is saying, and that is the human sickness is to imagine that the law encompasses everything. 
and by law that you can you know, have an exhaustive ontotheological, maybe a theodicy, you know, would be also be part of this. Matt deals with dying patients every day. And probably the worst thing a chaplain could do is to pat somebody on the shoulder and say, well, you know, it's all God, part of God's good plan. Oh, really? <laughs> no, that's not who God is. That's a pervert's explanation of God. Okay, so there's the feminine and the masculine. I have a question because when I hear the word pervert, it automatically, of course, conjures up kind of like a sexual sort of, uh, you know, sort of deviancy. So why, why that word, you know, and, and how does it apply to theology? Some of this you may not want to hear. Once you hear it, you'll be wishing I'd never said these things. Of course, originally it is that people's sexual perversion is where it arises, that people have a fetish, you know, a shoe fetish is a fairly common fetish. And so what is the point of a fetish? It is a, a kind of phallic replacement. The shock of the feminine, the missing phallus in Freudian theory was the last thing that the child or the last thing the person saw before they discovered sexual difference maybe was the shoes. And so they attached to this, okay, I already see you're disturbed by what I'm saying. The, the missing phallus of the mother is denied. There's a denial of castration. So the pervert is saying the law is everything. The, the phallic explanation covers every category. There is no contingency. If we think of this in terms of the symbolic order, it's all, all it means when you get, by the time you get to Lacan, you know, you can skip all the Freudian stuff if you find it offensive. But, but all it's saying is that the symbolic order covers everything, that the law covers everything. And it does relate to human sexuality because it seems like the human, that the, the sexual difference is to say, well, wait a minute, we're contingent beings. We're, we're finite beings. And the human genitalia point to that. We're not, as we would imagine in the fundamental fantasy, floating free of the contingent order of male, female, slave, free, you know, in Paul's language. So th I think that's why, where it gets taken up, that it literally is referring to sexual perversion in Freud. But by the time we get to Lacan, I, I think the philosophical explanation is easier to understand than the Freudian sexual stuff. I'm not sure I buy the Freudian stuff, but I, I do understand the denial of castration, and castration just refers to the missing female phallus. I actually like what Tim just said. I said that on Twitter today that like it's the, you know, so Jeff Bezos is like shooting off in outer space, you know, in his giant sort of phallic symbol, you know. Yeah. When also, whenever I hear the word pervert, of course, you think automatically, you think sort of something along the lines of like fantasy. Right. And I think that that's what what you're getting at. So when you talk about the fundamental fantasy, and, and that is a major theme, I think, in, in the book, because I think that what you're saying is, is, well, that fundamental fantasy, you know, carries over into, into the way that we think about ourselves, theology, uh, politics, uh, whatever. I, like we were talking earlier that Lacan says that fantasy is like inscribed always and already into the sexual relationship so that there is no sexual relationship apart from fantasy. So in other words, he just says, yeah, you know, you, you can't have the sexual relationship apart from fantasy. It's inscribed in, into the relationship. So and that's, why, that's why there is no sexual relationship, by the way. So that there's just pure animal copulation or there is this notion that we have in which the body is written over. And, and all of this sounds strange until, first of all, you turn to the Bible or you turn to the clinic. This is, <laughs> you know, what do people have hangups about? Well, this is it. And so Paul is going to call the body, uh, as we're talking about it now, he's going to refer to it as the flesh. And of course, what he means by the flesh is this sin principle that the body is written over 
with this symbolic order. That is that we do not have access in this sense to our body apart from the symbolic order, but the symbolic order that it's overwritten with is this fantasized symbolic order. A very simple thing, maybe that, that will help you with all this. The body is the real, in a sense. I know that sounds odd, but I mean, by the body, I mean the reality of the physical human body is a, a way of getting back to what actually Lacan, in other words, that's what we lost. That's what we do not have access to. You know, love is overwritten. Can you clean up your illustration, Matt? Well, we're all, you know, we're all adults, but this is, uh, I was listening to Zizek, you know, and then Zizek tells this funny, you're talking about the, the joke that he tells. When, you, when you, somebody says Zizek tells a funny joke, you probably want to look around and see who's in the room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Tell, he uses like that sort of humor to illustrate the perversity of the situation that we're in, you know, and he was saying, yeah, you know, it's like, it's, it's, it's like the story of like the guy, you know, the porn star who's doing a porn scene. Uh, with the you know with the porn star and he can't maintain his erection so he says all right everybody cut I, someone bring me my cell phone I need to look at some porn like he has to you know you understand like the symbolic the body is literally in that example like an obstacle to his enjoyment or his satisfaction you know it's like you got to have the symbolic you know it's like well I'd rather have the cell phone you know and look at it through the realm of the symbolic than the actual body you know that's how i'm aroused you know i need that excess sort of enjoyment that you saw uh, the idea of of human desire obviously that's where we we went off the rails somewhere animals they do their thing and they're not fantasizing about it in their spare time the the desire is an exponential desire because we've tied it into the symbolic and that's the fantasy that's the fantasy element so when we say fantasy think several things. One, it's immortal. It, it is disembodied in a sense. He says the, the thing about fantasy is you're not there. Yeah, yeah, no, you're absent. That's why you cannot have in a Lacanian system of things, he says there is no sexual relationship because you cannot coordinate the symbolic with the body because the, the, the body is written over with the symbolic. Or another way of saying it, you can't coordinate the symbolic with the imaginary. So I think that's just an explanation, a long explanation of what Paul means by the flesh. He doesn't mean people's bodies, but by the flesh, he means this thing that gives rise to a death-dealing desire, an exponential desire that is an all-consuming desire that kills. Because what we would do is find ourselves and find our truth in a disembodied symbolic order. It's a, a very strange thing, I think, that Zizek, the materialist, loses the material world. In other words, he really can't be a materialist because he really is, in his world, the symbolic order is the truth in a sense. In other words, the truth inheres in a lie. That's, that's all he has. That's Milbank's accusation against Zizek. Zizek, the materialist, he's not left with anything. He's not, he doesn't really have the material order. What, one of the things, the way that you described it, that helped me to understand part of some of this, my wife says, you know, you're talking riddles. And I'm like, yes, he does. <laughs> no. But you said, Paul says, thou shall not covet. And of course, the prohibition gives rise to the desire to covet. You know, I would not have known what it had meant to covet unless the law said, thou shalt not, you know, desire is another word for covet, you know? And so it's like the law gives rise to like this transgressive desire. It's kind of, it kind of, it's like an antagonistic because of our sinful orientation to it. It's not that the law itself is evil, it's good, but because of our perverse orientation to it. When my dad says, don't smoke cigarettes, you know, I go buy a carton and go down to the, you know, the creek and smoke my brains out of it, you know. Just, that's our orientation to the law, perverse. I like uh, Gombin's, you know, some of this stuff you hear and hear, it can suddenly hit you, it suddenly sinks in. It, this is sort of my, you know, Zizek is at this point doing a Gombin. 
You understand, Zizek, Badu, Agamben, they've all written commentaries on Romans. That's already strange, you know. When I first came to the States, they were actually having a conference. I think it was in New York. Uh, it was a, a conference on Paul, and all of the speakers were atheists. And, of course, what they're doing, they're all reading Paul. And this section, you know, when Paul says, thou shalt not covet, Agamben says, well, that's a foreshortening of the actual command. That is an impossible command. You know, the command is, well, you won't covet these particular things, but thou shalt not covet provokes that that's the way that you hear the law. And so you're already focused on the law, the letter of the law, as opposed to the whole thing itself. And that's, you know, Paul's point. The letter of the law kills. Zizek's other example is, you know, thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not kill. 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 <laughs> that as you focus in on the command, it gives rise to the transgression. Again, that may seem highly implausible, except we know that's the way that perversion actually works, that people get caught up. There's nothing more transgressive than legalism. We're it, surrounded by it. So with desire, what is it that we're looking for in our fantasies? Is it God? Is it life? Yeah, yeah. That What you would do in the fantasy... First of all, it is a, a symbolic thing, you know, that what you're doing is you're floating free of contingency and mortality. Think of the Cartesian cogito. What is it that he gains? He actually escapes his body through the thought. I think, therefore I am. You don't need your body to think. You just need thought itself. And so if my thinking is my being, I've escaped finitude and death. Again, this may, to say it, to articulate it, may ring untrue, but I think what we're describing is this thing that we're grabbing for. It is this being, it is life, it is to establish our own uh, autonomous being. I think that is the human drive. Of course, the drive is to gain that which we do not have. We don't in some way, we don't have life. This is the picture in Genesis, you know, that Eve goes panting after the tree of the knowledge of good and evil as she's giving up the breath of God, that it is the life that comes from God that sustains. But as she turns to the tree of knowledge and good of good and evil, then she is breathless, and not in a good sense, in the sense of having lost the life force. We refuse to, to be dependent. You know, and, and again, when, when we articulate all this, I think we're describing something that is perhaps at an unconscious level. I don't think we go around usually talking this way. And we don't know how to name this thing. We don't know how to name this desire. We don't know what compels us. So I think we're describing something that usually doesn't get articulated. But once you articulate it, then you can apply it back and say, oh, now I recognize what that drive is. So, I mean, but the fundamental fantasy is, though, it's a pretty terrible thing, as you describe it in the book, because it's like you, you imagine that you establish yourself apart from, you know, God or creator or whatever. But what you really establish is a straight up fiction, you know, like, so the ego construct or whatever. And so like the fundamental fantasy is, is that you really have a ground to your being or yourself apart from sort of this nothingness, like this bottomless abyss or whatever. Yeah. Is that, I mean, is that any great mystery? Isn't that the game we're all playing? That in the symbolic order, I want, uh, you know, I want to be somebody in the matrix, maybe, you know, somebody important, like an actor. He doesn't care. It's a, a simulated, computer-driven order. And the one thing he chooses is to, to be an actor, which is even a step further into a simulated order. He transgresses. You know, it's like that's the thing about the prohibition giving rise. You know, it's like thou shalt not kill. Instead of like realizing that as a good command, you know, grounded in love, you know, and stuff like that, it's like, you know, it's almost like the perverse way to, you know, is like, or what, you know, thou shalt not kill. It's like, it's a combative sort of, like I remember when I was in kindergarten and for some reason the teacher was, we were making applesauce on the stove, on the stove in the room, you know, and the teacher was making applesauce and somebody knocked on the door and she said, all right, you kids, you know, nobody get up out of their seats. 
and I'll be right back. You know, and she walked to the, to the back of the room and I got up out of my seat and I walked to the front of the room and I put my hand on the stove and I burnt the crap out of myself. And you know, it's like, but that isn't that like a perfect illustration? I, you know, I was given a prohibition and to my own harm, I wouldn't have even thought about going up to the stove. Like I'm a perfect, you know, so that's in other words, like the, 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 the temptation is to think that we're talking about someone else with all this stuff. You know what I mean? But I think that what you're saying is, is that like, no, I, this is all of us. You know, we have a perverse sort of relationship to God that I think that what you're going to say in your book is that part of the work of salvation is to free us from a perverse relationship with God and our neighbor and ourselves. And, and maybe that's the disturbing thing about what I'm doing. I am afraid that if, you know, as we begin this class tonight, we were talking about here I am in Missouri. We know in Missouri that, that God is with us. You know, God is from, we know he's from the Midwest. You know, all the wars that we fought, you know, he's been on the side of America. And we know these godless heathens have caused this. I think the sickest people, if you want to find perverse religion today, I'm afraid the evangelical right-wing conservatives. And I don't mean that other people are left out of this. I'm not picking on anyone. I just think it's most illustrative in this instance of what we're saying. There is no questioning of what the the authorities say. I, th I thought this phrase was uh, interesting. It, he says, uh, this is page 96 at the very bottom. He says, the dynamic of sin is an identity uh, caught up in a web which tightens its grip the more it is resisted. I thought that was the price of the book, Paul, right there. I mean, in a sense, isn't that what Paul's saying in Romans chapter 7? It yeah. is the death drive. It is the... Right, the, it's that death drive, and the more you 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 think you, you know, whatever you're, you're going after or looking for, uh, what you think is bringing you uh, life is taking you right to death, and it just continues to, to tighten more and more. Yeah, it is the animal that gets its foot caught in the, the trap. The more you pull, the tighter the trap gets. That is the picture of the death drive. What is the death drive? It's the drive to get rid of the death drive. I think Christianity is supposed to be healing. And I'm afraid it's not a healing thing for most people because they've confused the sickness and the cure. And so uh, I know I spend a lot of time in the book, In the Darkness, but I think a, a good part of this is, yeah, but we failed to recognize the thing that has, has us in its grip. People are sick, and we're just, we're just see, we just see it all around us that people are sick. Can you give us concrete examples of us mistaking the sickness for the cure? We have Christ dying for the law. The law is God's righteousness revealed. And the reason Christ died is to satisfy God's anger and to make us right with the law. And so all of Christianity gets down, reduced down in the language that I've just described it. It's perversion. It is making God a pervert. I mean, obviously, because we are perverts. We project that onto God. And so the whole Christian story becomes one of reconciling us not to God, not but to reconcile us to the law and the death of Christ then is exhausted in that explanation. And so you get evangelical Christians. I can't remember the guy that a president of the Evangelical Association here in the States. And you know, he was preaching against them, them homosexuals. And then they found out uh Ted Haggard, yeah, that he was having a homosexual affair. But he wasn't shamed by that at all. He went on television. He says, well, that just proves that I'm a sinner and that I need saving. He, he was literally a living illustration. My transgression, that I am sinning that grace may abound, that my own transgression shows that I am, you know, on God's side. So that this, this may sound implausible, except we just see it happen again and again. The same version of this when I was a kid. He would get up, he, boy, just get sweaty preaching, you know, against that sec those sexual perverts, you know. The, uh, Jimmy Swagger, Jimmy Swagger. Well, you guys are good. You know you're perverts. <laughs> and then he was having these affairs. 
That's your next book, Pervert's Guide to Cinema. You could do Pervert's Guide to Preachers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they have this sickness that they're putting on full display that they're apparently, in other words, it doesn't occur to them that in some way they're not shamed by it because the nature of their salvation is symbolic. They're saved in the symbolic order, and that's all that matters. Once you secure yourself in the symbolic order, so Christianity is functioning as a support for the fundamental fantasy in which we would establish ourselves in the symbolic order. And of course, the, the alternative to this is real easy. Oh, what we're really about is really living life and really being there for other people and really loving people and not doing it symbolically or not doing it for the sake of the symbolic order, for an imputed righteousness. That's why we have the incarnation. We find God in creation. That is a affirmation of the created order. I think that we are, our tendency is to be disincarnate. We tend to float off into the, into the symbolic order. And so maybe the Jesus incarnation was the first, that humankind prior to that failed to be human. Uh, some of this made me think of um, uh, existentialism a little bit and the idea that the hysteric questions the symbolic or that the pervert remains in the realm of the symbolic made me think of, um, you know, like Heidegger and Nietzsche talking about how people live just as a part of the herd, you know, unquestioning, unthinking, just going along with the flow of culture, of life, and, and not having a, like a questioning spirit. Because you even say, the pervert, on the other hand, closes off the question of the nature or source of desire by equating it with the law. So so everyone's, he, he's comfortable to stay with the law. I guess my question or my thought was that how do we uh, await, like how do we be the hysteric? How do we like awaken ourselves uh, and, you know, recognize like, that the matrix is happening or how do we like observe there's enough of us that are observing, you know, fundamentalism operating in this kind of symbolic space as the dominant form of Christianity. There's enough of us that have been kind of like awakened, I guess, to say that doesn't seem right. So I guess my question is just kind of how does one become a hysteric or what is the figure of the hysteric? Like, can he or she actually be free from the symbolic or are we always like tethered to the symbolic I mean, I don't know enough about this stuff in uh, Lacan and Zizek, but um, but also, does it does it also resonate at, at all with kind of like an existentialism, like a kind of like you said, the purpose of the hysteric is uh, like autonomy or something? You said I'd done a blog somewhere that I just take Soren Kierkegaard's "Sickness Unto Death" mm -hmm. and I tie it into Lacan. Oh, and cool. what I say is that Kierkegaard was a Lacanian before Lacan. He's just tracing this. It's almost uncanny. Mm -hmm. And, of course, part of this is I just think everybody reads Kierkegaard. Inclu I know Lacan read Kierkegaard. And Lacan says as much. You know, at the end of a long section, he says, and, of course, what I'm talking about when I talk about the father and the symbolic is what Kierkegaard calls sin. So he knows he's doing that. He knows, you know, they're, they're tying it into Kierkegaard's ver version of existentialism. So yes, that I think it does tie in directly to Kierkegaard and that form of, of Christianity. I think it flows out of that. You know, I think Lacan would credit Kierkegaard. So the symbolic is like Christendom, right? So the attack on Christendom, like that. Kierkegaard, but I was also thinking about it in terms of Heidegger and Nietzsche, like the pulling the I out of the they, like self-realization and self-actualization, like out of the herd, out of out of uh, every out of the symbolic. If if the hysteric is the one that sees how the system works, or yeah, questions the very structure of desire, and it's just and and then and then I don't know what the next step is. Like does the hysteric then say just reveal like just reveals that this is at, at work? But this may create a crisis for faith in the way that we're used to doing faith. When Zizek is describing Paul, most of this I can agree with. But of course, Zizek is just going to say, 
in the end, you know, the way he describes that the, the kind of understanding we need to get rid of, that's what Paul's describing, you know, with the example at the beginning of Romans 7, is that the woman who would consort with her lover and whose husband is alive, what he does there is quite ingenious. The danger is what we would end up doing is defining love then on the basis of the law, the idea that within me, deep within me, there is this thing that cannot be subjected to the law. So that's not what we're talking about. You know, we're not talking about, oh, we have to in some way step outside of this thing and imagine that, you know, I think Wittgenstein is always good therapy here because we, we are language users, but what it means to be language users is to be embodied. What we would do with language, though, is tend toward disembodiment. And we would imagine that that thing that resides deep within me you know, this is so obvious in Japan. Literally, they talk about it as the inside and outside person. My honne is my secret self, and I never reveal my secret self. And of course, what the secret self involves, the I am a cat, any of you Japanese novel fan, novelists, the sensei in the story lives all of his life with this secret. And of course, the secret is really who he is, that, that is identifying. So the sensei has, teacher has a pupil, and he's dying. And he says to him, I'm going to spurt the blood of my heart upon your face. I'm going to reveal everything. That is, to, to tell you this secret is going to be the equivalent of my death. And in the secret, what it turns out is that he's betrayed his best friend in order to marry the woman that he's been married to all, all of these years. This is the picture that the psychoanalyst Takeo Doi picks up. He uses this in his illustration of what a healthy individual is. In Japan, a healthy individual is somebody who has their secrets and can keep them. Because once you reveal your secrets, there's no one left. And so think of Augustine's notion of having a private language. Oh, well, who I am resides within me, within my deep private self, or there is this deep self within. In Japan, the common phrase is, you know, you're foreign, and you can never understand we Japanese. The implication is, well, actually, the mystery goes all the way down. The very foundation of human personhood is in this mystery of the secret self. So there's the inward self, and then there's the outward self. That's my public face. And my public face is completely removed from my inward self. And the better you can make this divide, the healthier the individual. Japan it can be a torturous place to live. But they're openly admitting, I think, the, the thing that happens in this culture, too, or in the cultures that we probably share. You know, we imagine that, that who I am is my neuroses. We identify ourselves with our sickness, and we become attached to our sickness, because our sickness, we think, is the most interesting thing about us. Maybe we don't think it that way, because it's actually quite torturous to be sick. But nonetheless, we cling to this thing. We compulsively repeat it. Because in some way, we are caught up in as if this is who, who we are. This is our identity. And I'm sorry, you guys can never understand me. I think what we're doing, we're playing that game. It is a game in which we're positing the, this kind of order that is completely disembodied, removed from reality. I, I think this is the disease that most people live their life suffering from. They can never really be there with other people. The idea of agape love is nearly made an impossibility, but that's what Zizek is, the argument between Zizek and Agamben is, you know, what is the nature of love? Well, if you posit love on this notion of some inward kernel within me, that Woody Allen, I don't know if he raped his stepdaughter or what he did to her, but then he marries his other daughter, his stepdaughter, and says, well, the heart wants what it wants. That's his explanation. That sort of love that we're seeing on display in the Haggards and Swaggarts and, the, you know, just endless, it's just, just continual, is precisely this kind of perverse notion of something deep within me that is the establishment of my personhood. I need this thing. 
I'm sorry to pick on people's heroes. Ravi Zacharias. That was what he was saying to the girls. I need this. I, I just have to have this. You feel so sorry, so sad. Here is a guy with a powerful intellect who has been unable to confront the reality of himself. Because in some way, that reality, I think, it must have provided him, as he said, a, a kind of it was truly who he was. He needed it because the other part of him, you know, in J Japanese terms, was the outward face. This idea of confronting the reality of ourselves in that kind of existential understanding, the systems that you're a part of and kind of removing, your, being, being able to like out of your own will or out of your own realization, remove yourself from systems of symbolic things and, and be in, in that self-actualization thing. But this is, that's much more of like a hopeful, the one that you said about kind of confronting the reality of ourselves or the dark side of, of ourselves. And, and the, the reality is that's not the reality. Yeah. Is that, is that other thing you're saying? Is that still when you're attached to the law? Yeah. Yeah. You're okay, just, okay. Uh, you're just a pervert. Oh, okay. Or, it does generate literal perversion. So we're using symbolic philosophical language. Yeah. But I still think, yeah, no, it's really generating a kind of perverse suffering well, personality. Where does the superego fit in? Because isn't that like the superego weighing in and constantly, you're just constantly beating yourself up? Like I think of a friend who kind of struggles with self-worth or whatever you want to say, but also just kind of Calvinistic ideas of, of just being totally depraved. And you said, you know, because being part of the Anglican church growing up, it was started every service. I'm not even worthy to pick up the crumbs from the bottom, you know, from the from your table, oh Lord, or whatever. It's always just this is kind of belittling. It's sort of you are nothing. You are you are sinful. You've caused God pain. You you nailed your sin nailed into the cross. All these kinds of things that we grew up with that are little, that, that uh, we internalize and then come to see ourselves as just filth or whatever. Yeah, no, it is, is the obscene superego that I'm describing. The, right. This is what Zizek, his whole, he identifies his whole project and especially his Christian, the Christian element of his project to free us from the obscene superego. So what we're describing with the law is this kind of, mm. we picture the, conscience or the superego as the basis of human morality. But of course, the point is, well, no, this is the, the foundation of immorality, that our morality is our immorality. And the obscene superego is what drives people. I mean, just think about standing up and exposing yourself in a theater. What would cause someone to do that? Something's happening. <laughs> you know, and I think we can say that about all of these things, that something strange is going on here. And it's not the Ghostbusters we need. That it is this obscene superego, this obscene relationship to the law that drives this perversion. So that's the whole Zizek, you know, sums up. The whole thing is, how do we get rid of this thing? The big other. The big other. The big other. You know, when he talks about atheism, that's what he means by atheism, to get rid of this obscenity that we call God, or we call the superego. But you understand that atheism per se doesn't really help, and he's the first to acknowledge that. In other words, it's that what we're describing is not simply religion, but it's a psychology that has been projected into a religion. So it's not going to help to just disbelieve in God, because you still have the perverse superego. That's helpful. I think there is a connection with, I, for some people, I hesitate to say this, but I, I sometimes wonder if the healthiest thing for many people is not to just be an atheist. But I'm not sure that cures the problem, but it may be a start. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe you would want to challenge, because my own journey in this, Christ is an image of God that becomes of the fullness of our image of God. I think this is true orthodoxy, is that we understand who God is in Christ, and Christ gets rid of the big other for us. I think Paul's notion of God dies when he becomes a follower of Christ, because he ceases being a pervert. And, and to my mind, Christianity is the way to do this. But I also understand that for many people, that Christianity may so be intertangled with their own suffering that 
that it may be very hard for them to do this. And I, I, I would say, oh, I understand that. So we've been given this perverse notion, but, the, but understand the perversity is not peculiar to Christian, but Christianity has become a support of this perversity. I would just say that that's it's terrible. I think that, well, I mean, I just hate, because Nathan's question, I think, is like, it is like the question. It's like, well, okay, how do we get out of this? You know, like that's what I heard Nathan is saying. It's like, okay, well, what you described is like the cure is the sickness or whatever. It's like double double matrix, you know? It's like, oh, you know, I, I, it's just so bewildering. I, I still don't know how you can get free completely like in this life, frankly, from like the situation that you're describing. Like I, I'm a Christian, you know? And so I'm, I'm hoping that you become free of the passions and stuff like this. It's such an overwhelmingly... To me, this is what... Christianity is about, that Christ can save you. That's all I got is, in other words, what save us from what? Well, I think from what I've just described, what I've described is terrible. You understand that, that these people doing, that living this kind of life, they're suffering from it. In other words, it is a kind of masochistic lifestyle, I think, that people put upon themselves. Can you imagine the guilt that Ravi Zacharias was living with? Because he was, a, I think that he was a good, I mean, I, don't, I can't make those kind of pronouncements, but, you know, just based upon his teachings and stuff for years and years, it's like, there was obviously some part of him that loved the gospel, that loved, you know, the truth, that loved the good, that, you know, and so like, the, this is, I just think, I guess this is what always happens whenever we transgress or we sin or whatever, is that it's a it's a torturous existence but what's even worse though is what i think you're describing and that is is the people who imagine that they have the cure but it's actually the sickness like that how do you this is what kierkegaard says he says well it's hard enough you know to convince a dreaming person that they're awake but how do you convince the person who's awake that they're sleeping yes and i think this is kierkegaard that christ delivers us from christendom it, it is just a continuation of a kind of Christendom uh, in which the symbolic order of the church d displaces the symbolic order of the law or, you know, in, in other words, any authority structure can be serve in the place of the obscene superego. If you sat Ted Cruz down and you said, Ted, it's my understanding that you're a Christian. But it's also my understanding based upon all these different, you know, documents that we have and all these evidence that we have that like your policies and all this stuff is like antithetical to the teachings of Jesus Christ. That there would be no way to convince Ted Cruz the, the truth of you're saying that you're a Christian, but all of your policies, all of the ways that you talk about foreigners, all the ways that you talk about enemies and violence and we just go all the way down the list is like anti it's like, you know, the opposite of what Jesus teaches. It's an obstacle to him becoming, you know, to sort of being able to buy into Christianity because there would be no way for me to convince Ted Cruz that you're you're actually not, in fact, you know, following the master's teachings of the religion that you claim to follow, that he would just dismiss it and say, well, you don't understand, or, you know, you're, you're misinterpreting the Sermon on the Mount, or, or just whatever. Like, he's, that's the, to me, that's like the real scary thing that I think that Zizek and these other people are saying, how do you get beyond like in your, that you've been writing about, like, like it's kind of scary stuff after God and stuff like that. And atheism, it's like Christendom. It's like, well, does all this stuff have to kind of pass away before something? Yeah, no, I think Ted Cruz is the perfect example of a pervert, but he is a, a pervert because he's a good Christian. In other words, I think his Christianity is his main support. I guess. But you understand, we're all capable of repenting. Somebody's world can crash. And, and so when we say this, but what we're seeing is somebody who is clearly incapable of questioning that God is on his side. It just can't occur to him. But I presume that we're all, through life circumstance, thrust into situations where our world falls apart, and then we're prepared to meet God. Was that like an altar? Was that like an altar call? If you come forward now, and I'm coming forward. I'm repenting. <laughs> uh, could we pass the offering plate? <laughs> that's all I got. That uh, would be the real diversity too, because that's what happens. You know, it's like I need to make some money off this thing. You know, I need the symbolic. Symbolic is a thing. You know? Speaking of offering, I still can't pay you, Paul. I've been trying to pay for this unit. And it won't work? You won't take my money. 
you send it to me, I'll make sure Paul gets it. <laughs> it's a symbolic matrix that I try not to enter into at all. And I have experts that are able to enter the matrix and manipulate the ones and zeros. Yeah. Well, well I, I, want, I want my money back. I came for I came philosophy and I'm getting psychology. <laughs> it all becomes psychology in the end. This conversation is uh, excellent, very helpful. But, yeah, it's, it's trying not to despair too much um, for many reasons. They're so, I guess, deeply entangled in this perverse Christianity that even when I try and offer what I think are words of life and freedom and Christ, they recoil from, from that because it, it's just so like, what? Yeah. <laughs> that can't be right. Well, I think what David is going to preach on next week is the phallic mother does not exist. <laughs> okay. No, I, that, that's a terrible. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I don't know that I'm going to use that title, but that, that, might be, uh, that might be where I'm going. I, I probably won't say phallic mother either. I just decided, you know, I'm going to go through Genesis 1 through 11. We, we live in a Genesis 3 world with, when it comes to the ladies, um, and yet Jesus has started something brand new, which probably resembles more of Genesis 2 than it does Genesis 3. I, I have a question, because I think that we can take, you can take us out on a high note if you answer that. So how, how does Jesus save us from the darkness that you're describing thus far? What's it look like? The entire thing is built upon a disincarnate gap. And what we have in Christ is a return to the world. There is an affirmation of the world. There is an affirmation of just being human. There is an affirmation of uh, approaching God, then, an embodied condition. The resurrection, you know, an embodied resurrection is a life that we begin living. There is a real-world participation you know, when, when we say God, I just mean reality. What we've been describing is participation in an unreality. So how can we participate in reality? My understanding is that the only access we have is an incarnate, embodied, real-world living this out. So then, um, so then, Paul, really, Christians who have truly gone through that journey and encountered reality should be the most alive this worldly, fully engaged human beings in the planet, and somehow, so often, we could the complete opposite of that. Yeah, occasionally this breaks through in Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard mm -hmm. describes the Christian guy going through his day. He said, outwardly, you may not notice any difference. But of course, what's happening is when he eats or when he does something, he's there. He's fully there. He's present. And he's just, that there is a kind of, it breaks through, you know, you don't think of Kierkegaard as a kind of joyous writer, but I think that when he's describing this normal life that, that is available to us, that the world is open to us and other people are open, the, the love of other people. I think that's what he got. And I think that's what, what we have, that, that it can just makes that available to us. Was it, uh, was it Irenaeus who said that the glory of God is a human being fully alive? Or, or I like that. Him? I like that. If he didn't say it, he should have. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'll have to check that out. Google it. <laughs> I like it. I like that. Um, I just had a, a couple of thoughts, too. Like, I think a lot about the when, when Paul talks about it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I think we have a tendency to almost like make this, like he's speaking metaphorically, like, well, it's not possible that Christ can live in you because, you know, he's a different person. But I think Paul really means it literally that when he, when he was baptized or he, he talks about when, when Gentiles are baptized and that they receive the spirit of Christ within them, the inmost self dies and is replaced by the spirit of Christ. And so that's the way that I sort of conceptualize like the, the saving activity of Christ within us through his spirit is that we continue to live from with, we live with the mind of Christ, which is the mind of the spirit. And, and we sort of do the work that facilitates the, the exponential growth of the spirit of Christ within us in order to live in the world. And I think that's, it's kind of just like the practice of reminding ourselves 
recalling that our inmost self is God. Our inmost self is the spirit of God. And, and living from that is how we, how, how, how we find uh, healing, I believe. I like that. That's perfect. That's perfect. I'll come forward now. (laughs) (laughs) I like it. I like it. Out of the darkness, Paul. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I always need somebody to come along with the good news. I'm great at delivering the the bad news. (laughs) That's great, Tom. Hey, I love this group and good to see everybody. See you all next week. See you guys. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org. Dot org.